Before we uh, go to the Word, we're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 27. And so if you want to be turning in your Bibles there. And um, if you have a bulletin, you'll find that there's an outline in your bulletin. You can kind of uh, follow along. And uh, the, the high school students and the junior hires exhorted me to put blanks back into the bulletin because they like to fill in the blanks for all the different heads. I see heads nodding. I, I really didn't know that was a thing, but it's a thing. So in subsequent weeks, you, you know, maybe you can get your hopes up again that there will be a blank for you to fill in. <laughs> but anyway, so that, that's in your bulletin. That's a, uh, an outline just to uh, help us as we work our way through our passage. We're in Acts chapter 27. We'll be inching into chapter 28 as well. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord together in prayer and ask his blessing on our time. Father, we worship you this morning. We worship you for who you are, that you are high and lifted up, that you are the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, that you spoke creation into existence. You didn't break a sweat and you sustain worlds, things I can't comprehend and places my eyes will not reach. And yet you keep them spinning and you keep them in order. So we worship you. And we also also worship you because you see into us. And you work in the secret places of our hearts. And you're concerned about us. And you take care for, for us. Though we are fallen, though we are small. And so we worship you. And we praise you for what you have done. We praise you primarily for what you have done in Christ. That we can have peace with you. That we can be reconciled to God. That we can, that we can approach you. That we can come to you even in prayer like this as a result of what Christ has done. And so we praise you. Father, we confess this morning that we often don't think of you. Or don't think of you as we ought. We go through our days and we accomplish our things and we make our decisions all too often without regard for you, without thanksgiving to you, without inquiring of you what you would have us do or seeking you. I pray that you would forgive us. And Father, this morning as we come to your word and we get to read about what you accomplished in the early church and particularly in this journey of Paul's, we pray that you would help us in this time. Help us to see you at work. Help us to be focused on your word, to be sensitive to your spirit. Help us not to be distracted, but to be all here, right here, to hear what you have for us. Thank you that we live in a a land where we get to do this freely. We are not uh, ducking the authorities or anything like that. We praise you for that, and we praise you and thank you that you have... Uh, given us men and women who've uh, served in the military that uh, to protect that right and many others. You are a good God and you take care of us. And we do ask for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Previously in uh, the book of Acts, we remember how Paul had appealed to Caesar. He was being uh, he was being interviewed essentially, and he had appealed to Caesar in his conversation with Festus, and and uh, this is because Paul knew he was innocent, and he was willing to demonstrate that, and demonstrating it to a lower court, a lesser official was uh, was not what he was desirous to do. He wanted to go to the highest court, he wanted to go to the highest official, and he wanted to. Uh, proclaim his case there before Caesar. And so he had appealed to Caesar and, and asked to go to him and be heard by him. And, and so, of course, that's what's going to happen. And, and, um, and so it, very interesting about Paul's innocence that a big part of the discussion, even in this chapter and in chapter 28, is about Paul's innocence, that we have seen him be on trial for all these times and interviewed by different people, by different authorities, and, and, uh, and yet he's innocent. And he, he invites scrutiny and he invites, uh, if you have some charge against me, bring it. And there is none. There are squabbles about uh, religious things that, that uh, the, the authorities back in Israel are, are not happy with him and whatnot. And, and, uh, but he is, in, he is an innocent man. 
And of course, you and I know that from what we've read. We've read the story and we've, we've seen what's gone on, that he, he hasn't been starting any uh, kind of uprising. He hasn't been trying to overthrow any governments or, or anything like that. He's just been proclaiming Christ. And so we know he's innocent. God knows he's innocent. Paul knows he's innocent, that these charges won't stick. But in our passage today, we have a very interesting uh, picture of his innocence. And you, you've you read chapter 27 of Acts before, and you're thinking, well, how is this a picture of his innocence? But uh, I'm going to show you how it's a picture of his innocence. It's basically a journey. Paul is on a journey, and he's done this before. He's sailed once or twice. Actually, the, the uh, scholars have added up how far he has sailed. And uh, in the book of Acts, he's probably already covered about 3,500 miles in a ship, which makes him very experienced. Uh, on on the high seas and and uh, so he's taking another journey here and this one is uh, going to take place throughout the course of the book of Acts and we see that this journey starts off and starts off not terribly uh, but it's going to go south pretty soon but there's something I want us to notice in these first few verses there's an interesting display of approval if we remember that Paul is going to be on trial, and he's going to be on trial before Roman authorities. And in light of those thoughts, we read these verses in chapter 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy... By the way, the we in there means that Luke is with him at this point. Luke is with him during various journeys. This is one of those. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship of... Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at, at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. You see, Paul is really on trial already. He's, he's, he has been interviewed, he's been tried, and he's going to be sent to Rome, and he's going to stand further trial there. But, but really what Luke is presenting is sort of a, a case that he's on trial already. And it's not just Paul that's on trial. It's really Christianity is on trial, and Paul is the representative of Christianity. And so it's interesting for us to note that he is going to be scrutinized by Rome and the representative of Rome who is the closest to him and is going to, going to uh, take care of him on this trip, the one who's been given charge of him to make sure he doesn't escape, he deals kindly with him. And he gives him leave to go ashore and spend time with his friends. And so we have right off the bat a display of approval from someone who would know if Paul himself was a threat and I think the, the message here to anyone reading this book is that Paul is not a threat to Rome. Christianity indeed is not a threat to Rome. And this Julius is uh, the first one to testify to that by the way he treats Paul. But we continue in our story and we see that that, uh, that nice beginning is, is, uh, is not the way it continues. We see a pretty disastrous uh, travel plan as they move forward. We continue in, in verse 4. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cenetus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasia. And so we see that every step of the way, the wind is against them. And this isn't just God being mad and stopping their journey or something like this. We can, we'll read later on that actually this is very late in the year. This is, uh, the, the time of the fast is approaching, the Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement. And this is late in the season. And, uh, this year actually, I was looking on my calendar this year, uh, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur took place on September 19th. So it's pushing into the fall time and can be all the way into October. And the ancient historians at this time tell us that if you're trying to travel on the Mediterranean, it, it gets dangerous when you get into October, and it becomes virtually impossible by the time you get to mid-November. 
that you're, you're actually just committing suicide by traveling after that point. And so they're late in the year and they've gotten started on their journey late. And so every step of the way is fraught with difficulty and, and the wind is against them and they're having to uh, travel in ways perhaps that they wouldn't otherwise. But the, it starts out with kind of a foreboding sense. This isn't going to go well. This is going to go south pretty quickly. And so we see their disastrous travel plan that they, why did they leave so late? I don't know, but they did. And it gets them into this kind of weather. And we see that it's going to get worse. And Paul's going to give a warning here. Continuing on in verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid no more attention, paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Remember I said that Paul was well-traveled. And this was not his first time on the high seas. He's traveled by ship many times that we've read about in the book of Acts. And he looks at the situation. He observes the weather. And I don't think he's speaking necessarily as a prophet or an apostle here, just as an experienced uh, traveler who says, this is a problem. We're going to lose our lives. We're traveling this late in the season is bad news, and so he he suggests that uh, that they don't continue, but instead stay put where they are and ride out the the winter there, so that they can start when it's safe. But of course, he gets overruled, and they continue on, and and they put out and and go to uh, trying to get to Phoenix, a harbor in Crete, and so now they're back out on the open seas. Now they're back out exposed to the elements. They're, they're back out where Paul had strongly encouraged them not to go at, at uh, the expense of their very lives. And, and so we see this continuing on. It's a very foreboding uh, beginning to their, to their journey. It's not encouraging for them at all. But we continue reading. The situation doesn't get much better. It gets worse. Verses 13 and 14. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And so when the, the wind is gently uh, blowing and it's favorable, it looks like it's now's the time to strike, now's the time to head out. And so they start sneaking along and, and they're staying close to the land where it's protected. But that's exactly where the wind comes from. And uh, things go south pretty quickly, and we see that uh, they, they're going to get into trouble. We continue on. They, things just spiral downhill from verses 15 on. We pick up the story again in verse 21. After things have gone so far downhill, they've been, uh, they've been throwing cargo overboard. They, they've even been throwing overboard the, the, the tackle of the ship that was unessential, just trying to lighten the ship. They didn't want to be blown into a sandbar or something like that. And so they've been throwing things overboard. They've been lightening their load. They've been, they know that this is a very bad situation. Actually, it says in verse 20, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. They're going to die. They're just going to perish out there on the water. We continue in verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And so in the midst of this situation where they have lost hope, they're throwing things overboard, anything to lighten their ship, anything to try and stay off of the reef or off of the sandbar, off of land, anything to stay afloat. 
They've lost all hope. And in that situation, Paul receives a word from the Lord. An angel stands beside him and speaks to him and says, Don't worry, Paul. You have to stand before. You have an appointment to stand before Caesar. You will make that appointment. And so here you have a word from God at exactly the right time, in the nick of time when all hope was lost. This angel shows up and gives him the message that he will survive. No amount of wind, no amount of waves will keep Paul from standing before Caesar and testifying to the saving work of Christ that is far greater even than the saving work that God is going to do amongst these 276 people on a ship in the Mediterranean at the wrong time of year. You will make it, Paul. You will make it. The promise doesn't only concern Paul. It's not only about him. Actually, the Lord tells him, you have been granted the life of everyone traveling with you so that they will survive, so that they will make it. Not only you, but they also will be blessed by your presence and the whole shipload of people will be saved from this storm and they will avoid a watery grave that they thought was a certainty and they will be delivered safely to their destination. God's preservation of Paul extends even to the people around him. For no other reason, it seems, were these other people blessed and preserved by God than the fact that Paul was there. I love Paul's message. The way he says it in verse 25, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Paul believes it. God said it. Paul believes it. And that settles it. And so my my question for you is, do you have that kind of faith in God's Word? That kind of faith. When you read things in the Bible that go against your own thoughts, do you believe the Bible? Or do you go with your own thoughts? When you see a promise in Scripture, for example, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and maybe you're one of those brokenhearted, do you take Him at His Word? Do you believe God's word? The fact is, one of the most basic tests for the Christian is this. Whether he will take God at his word or whether he will believe the testimony of the world around him. Which will we believe? Which will we go with? Which will we cling to? The message of God's word or the message of the world? Well, Paul takes him at his word. In the face of a storm that's about to kill them all, that the people who had spent time on the water and knew these things thought, we're dead. In, that, in the face of that, Paul trusts the Word of God and he stands firm in the midst of this storm. I firmly believe that what God has said will happen, will happen. So will you take God at His Word? Or do you put Him on trial in the court of your own human evidence or philosophizing or your own finite sense of morality? Or will you take God at His Word? I wonder how Paul has such faith. You could argue that he's seen God be faithful many times, and that is true. You could argue that he's an apostle and, and he's, God has spoken to him and, and, and Jesus has appeared to him numerous times and now an angel has appeared. And so, of course, he's going to believe. But our passage here tells us uh, what is behind his faith here. What what drives him, what gives him such great security. He says in verse uh, 23, Tonight there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Paul had a clear understanding of the reality, the truth of his existence. He belongs to God. God can do with Paul what he wishes. Because he is owned by God himself. God is his master. God is his Lord. I belong to him. He's the one whom I worship. He's the one whom I serve. And so because of that, because Paul is the sole property of God Almighty, he knows that God can do whatever he wants with him. And he's told him what he's going to do with him. And that settles it. He understands where he stands before God. He calls himself again and again in his letters a slave of Christ Jesus. And it's this 
understanding, this awareness, this belief in God's complete and total ownership of his life that gives Paul the great confidence that he has here to be able to stand in the midst of a storm where experienced sailors are sure they're going to die and to say, you will not die. My God will keep us alive. And of course, the story continues here, and we see in uh, verses 27 through 32 that there's a, a desertion attempt. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Paul may have had great confidence in God's word, but these sailors knew better. <laughs> and they were going to jump ship and they were going to take matters into their own hands and see after their own deliverance. And so as they had neared the land and they've taken soundings to find how close they're coming to the land as the bottom is rising quickly, they lay out anchors from the stern and the wind is blowing them. And so the, uh, the bow of the ship must be close to land. And so these guys decide at about midnight which is when these kind of decisions take place, that it's time to jump ship. It's time to get out of here. And so the sailors let down a boat, and, oh, we're going to go lay an anchor up there too, just a little closer to the land, if you don't mind. And, and so uh, they're going to escape. They're leaving. They've, they've decided they're going to, uh, to abandon this whole thing, and they're going to get away. And Paul knows what's going on. He sees what's happening. He knows the heart of man and, and uh, he, he has traveled enough himself and he, he looks and he sees they're trying to escape and he says, look, if these men escape, we cannot be saved. Very interesting in light of what he had just said that God will preserve his life. What's going on here is a, a peek into Paul's mind, his understanding of the sovereignty of God. First of all, he, he's an experienced seafarer and he knows if all the sailors who know how to sail the ship, if they all leave, how are we going to survive? We're, we're not going to. None of us knows how to drive this boat, so we better keep those guys who do know how on board. He has experience. He has wisdom. But also, there's more here. There's a peak of his view of the sovereignty of God that not only does God declare the ends not only does he decree the ends or what's going to happen he also decrees the means by which those things happen he determines how what instruments will be used what people will step in and do things to accomplish the end that god had there and so i think paul was merely observing look you sailors are the means by which god is going to deliver us safely to the island or to the to land so you better get back on the boat and so he, he gives the instructions, and of course they, uh, they, they, they hear it. The, the sailors or the soldiers cut away the boat and, and let, it, let it leave, but the sailors have stayed on board. Now there's someone to drive the ship, someone who knows what they're doing. And it's at this time, in the midst of all of this situation, perhaps in light of this situation, and uh, maybe the sailors were uh, terribly distraught and everyone else was terribly distraught because the only people who can deliver us were about to jump ship. And, and, uh, and so we have dinner served. We continue on in verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. 
And so Paul ministers to them in an extremely mundane way. He doesn't preach a sermon. He doesn't, he doesn't give a rousing gospel call. He says, you guys need to eat. You need food. And so he stands up in the midst of all that's going on and he, he stands and he prays and gives God thanks and he eats. And I think it's interesting how the Apostle Paul, who has seen wonders done and not long before this had seen an angel appear to him. And how does he minister? In great power and with a huge voice and, and everybody getting saved on the ship and miracles happening. He, he ministers in an extremely, extremely mundane way. A meal. And it probably wasn't even a very good meal because there was no one to cook it. And, you know, they had been in, in, in uh, this storm all this time. But he ate and he encouraged them to eat. Sometimes, Christian, our ministry may not look like leading thousands to Christ. In fact, my ministry hasn't looked like that ever yet. (laughs) Probably you're there with me. Usually our ministry is much more mundane than that. In the normal, everyday ministries, as we meet people's needs, as we encourage people, as as we point them to Christ in small ways and in big ways. And that's an encouragement to me. And that should be an encouragement to all of us because that's the way God normally ministers is in such mundane kind of ways. And even the imagery that's used here in verse 35, uh, Paul took the bread and, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. That sounds a lot like the Lord's Supper. And so some people have taught that he served the Lord's Supper and they were thus saved and encouraged that way. And that the, I don't think that's what's going on. I think, I think Luke is deliberately using the language of ministry to describe what Paul was doing in, in, in this situation. And it was such a normal way to minister, to feed a person. And that's what Paul was doing. And so dinner is served and the people are encouraged and we see the actual shipwreck happen, and, and uh, this, is, uh, this is not going to be good for the ship, but we see uh, good news for Paul and for the other prisoners, the other detainees, as they get spared. We continue on to verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest they should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. So you have another instance here of the kindness of this centurion to take care of Paul. And we've talked before about what happened to the guards, what happened to the soldiers. If a, uh, a prisoner escaped, well, that guard or that soldier who had been given charge of the prisoner would likely receive the punishment that the prisoner was going to receive. And no guard wants that. And so they decide, let's just kill them instead. Better to kill them than to have them escape. And we have to suffer their punishment. So they are about to do that. And, and uh, Julius comes in and he stops that because he wants to spare Paul. And so the result is you have all of these prisoners being spared again, as a result of the presence of Paul. We move on into chapter 28, the final deliverance. We continue on in uh, verse 1 of 28, and after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were 
waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So you have this situation of them finally making it to the shore and they get there and they're greeted in a very unusual way with the natives, the islanders there, build a big fire for them, keep them warm. They've been in the water, they've been storm-tossed for two weeks and now it's starting to rain, they're cold and miserable, so they build a fire and while they're uh, at this fire, Paul is helping out carrying some sticks and a, a snake comes out and bites him. And the people watching, the islanders who were superstitious and, and, uh, they're thinking, wow, this is a, this is a pretty, uh, pretty great day, an exciting day. We've, we've seen this, this horrendous shipwreck and now, now we get to see judgment at the hands of, of a god, right? This serpent sni- uh, striking him. And so they're excited to see what they're, what's gonna happen. Is he gonna swell up? Is he gonna die? He must really secretly be a bad guy and though he's escaped from the shipwreck, yet, uh, justice, the pagan goddess justice, whose job it was to to go around and root out uh, people who were guilty and hadn't been punished. Justice will take care of him. And she has sent this serpent. And so that's kind of what they are expecting and they're waiting to see this happen. You know, I, I said at the beginning that Paul's on trial. Christianity is on trial and has been throughout the course of the whole chapter. And, and it will continue. And this is one of the pictures of that. For the pagans, Paul is on trial by this serpent. Maybe he's secretly a bad guy. Maybe he's secretly up to no good. Maybe he's a murderer. Maybe, maybe his, uh, his, his uh, evil is catching up with him. He's being judged. In the pagan eyes, he's being judged by justice. Well, what happens? He doesn't swell up. He doesn't fall over dead. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't have any problems breathing or... He just kind of goes on about his business. And they watch him for a long time because they're sure this is going to happen. And he's fine. He's been found innocent by the pagans, by the pagan gods, by their superstition. He has been found innocent. He's been found innocent all along. How many times has Paul been interviewed? How many times has he stood trial before human judges? And he's been found innocent. He's been tried in the court of of Roman opinion as he's had this centurion travel with him this whole time. And what does the centurion think of him? He doesn't say, but he cares for him. He wants to spare him. He blesses him. He encourages him. He he gives him opportunity to go see his friends. And now, even after all that's gone on, he protects him from others who would seek to kill him. So in the court of Roman opinion, Paul's innocent. He's been judged by the sea. For anyone who reads... Ancient Roman literature or ancient Greek literature, you know that very often the sea is dangerous and people lose their lives in the sea and and judgment comes at the hands of the sea. And of course, Paul's journey thus far has looked like judgment, hasn't it? He's been on trial and, and, uh, and he's been found innocent. For, for the person reading, for the, for the literary Greek or Roman who is reading Luke's account here, and Luke was a literary Greek, Anyone reading that account would recognize the themes of the story. These very themes that I'm talking about of Paul being on trial. And now he's survived through the sea. Anyone who's read uh, the Odyssey or the Iliad, you know that the sea is where judgment happens. And this has been an uh, exceptionally difficult journey. But apparently deity is protecting him. He's been brought through all of those hard situations. He's innocent. He's being tried. Luke, in a very skillful literary way, is putting on display for everyone who, who reads this. Whether you're a believer, whether you're unbeliever, whether you're a pagan and, and you believe in the goddess justice or, or any other uh, such belief, whether you're a Greek or a Roman, in any way you look at it, Paul is being judged and he's been found innocent at every turn. And it's not just Paul who's being judged. It's Christianity. Luke is artfully putting on display for everyone reading this. Christianity is not a danger, is not a threat. Christianity itself is innocent. Christianity is not a threat to the Roman Empire. 
It's very skillful writing that, uh, that Luke is going into here. It would be akin to us reading in a story. You don't even have to believe in uh, these other gods and things like that to hear uh, the, the themes in this story. It would be like if I wrote a story and I started off the story by saying, I walked out the door this morning and a black cat crossed my path. Right? You, you don't believe that a black cat crossing your path is bad luck. I don't believe it's bad luck. But I've communicated to you expect bad things on this journey just by that literary device and that's a very simple one and and luke is using several of these kinds of literary devices to demonstrate to us that paul is innocent that christianity is innocent and we see we continue on in verse seven now in in that neighborhood or the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of, of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. You see the themes continuing. Wherever Paul goes, the people he is with are blessed. That's because he's a blessing. He's not a bad guy that deserves to be beheaded. He's not a bad guy who deserves to be thrown in prison. And by extension, his faith is the kind of faith that blesses people around it. He blesses even this man who's a, a, a wealthy man, an important man on this island when he heals his father. And so other people from the island hear about it, as you might imagine would happen. And they come and they are blessed as well. Paul is being tried and Christianity is being tried. And not only is Paul and Christianity, uh, not only are they innocent, they're a blessing to everyone around them. And isn't that true of Christianity? Don't we see that? Don't we who believe that know Know that, that Christianity is a blessing, that Christ is a blessing, that Christians are a blessing to their neighbors. By virtue of walking with Christ, by virtue of their faith, they are a blessing to those around them. And Luke is putting that on display in ways that readers will understand whether those readers are believers or not. And we finish up our story, verses 11 through 16, after three months, so they wrote out the winter there. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard us, came as far as the forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So finally, Paul arrives in Rome. He's there. He, he has declared when he wrote the book of Romans on his previous missionary journey, in writing Romans, he declared in chapter 1 and in chapter 15, I can hardly wait to get to Rome. I want to preach Christ to you. I want to have some spiritual fruit there. I want to encourage you. And I am sure that I will come with very great blessing. And here he shows up. He arrives. And he's finally arrived in Rome. And perhaps it wasn't uh, the way he would have wanted, but he has arrived there. He has gotten to his destination. And of course, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, just the remainder of this chapter, he won't leave Rome. That's, that's where he stays for the rest of our book. But it's fascinating how he got there. Did you wonder why Luke put that comment in there about the ship that sailed under the twin gods? Or some of, some of your versions word that differently, but that's a reference here to these, these, uh, twin gods of, uh, that's, no, Castor and Pollux. You wonder why I couldn't remember them. Castor and Pollux. Well, that should send bells off in your mind, right? But it, it doesn't, and it doesn't send bells off in my mind either. But for the person in this day, they would recognize the twin gods, those two, as being the very deities. 
that a sailor in distress would pray to asking for help. the, The very deities that all the sailors traveling with Paul had probably been praying to throughout the journey and all the hardships asking for help, they were the very ones, it was that ship that was taking them to Rome. Well, is, is Luke superstitious? Of course, Luke doesn't believe in these gods, but it would communicate to the reader. And what's more, these same two twin gods were very closely associated with Caesar. And so there's a symbol here of Caesar reaching out his hands and safely bringing Paul into Rome. That, that they have arrived safely, Paul has arrived safely, and with the blessing of Rome. And you see that in the way his housing is set up. He's not thrown in a dungeon. He has his own apartment. He 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 can have visitors. And it's a very comfortable situation. And so Luke is telling us, he's reminding us as we read through this that Paul is not guilty in the eyes of Rome, at least at this point in history. Of course, later on, Paul will be killed at the hands of Rome. But at this point in history, he's innocent. Christianity is innocent. And I think what's being communicated to the audience is don't be afraid of the big bad world. Even the authorities over you, even though they might be pagan, even though they might be evil, even though we we may or may not like the way the recent election has gone, don't be afraid of the big bad world. If Caesar and all that Caesar stood for and all that the Roman Empire stood for took such good care had such a high opinion of Paul. We can take encouragement that in our situation, we also don't need to fear the government. We don't need to fear the world. And that's a message that Luke is sort of under the surface communicating to us here. So what are the takeaways? What are the takeaways? Well, first of all, just because we're doing what we had hoped to do, like Paul had hoped to go to Rome, and surely it would be an easy trip, or at least not a bad trip. But just because we are doing what we had hoped to do and what God wants us to do does not mean that the way will not be fraught with difficulty. Every step of the way was tough. I mean, they had a, they had a very safe journey, the you know 100 miles or whatever from Caesarea to Sidon. <laughs> and then after that, it was downhill for the whole rest of the journey. And it was exactly what God wanted him to do. And it was exactly what he wanted to do. So let that encourage you where you are. Maybe you're trying to accomplish something. Maybe you're, maybe you're, uh, you, you, you have something you want to do and something you believe God wants you to do. And there are things standing in the way. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to do it just because it is difficult. Second takeaway. You may have noticed that Jesus is not mentioned in all of these verses. And God is only mentioned a half a dozen times. This is a journey story. This is a travel story. This is, it wasn't about what God was doing overtly. And more than that, Paul's voyage is chaotic and it's frustrated. And, and God is not visible for most of it. Can you relate? Can you relate? We, we started off the book of Acts with a bang. With Pentecost. With, with tongues and people could see evidence of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And people were being healed in miraculous ways. And thousands and thousands were coming to Christ. And, and people were sending their, uh, you know, their, their, their handkerchief to people. And, and this, the, Peter's shadow falling on people might heal someone. And wonderful, glorious things. And how we get to the end of the book of Acts... And it looks a lot more like life right now. It's mundane. It's chaotic. And it it can be very frustrating. As the reader, when you go through this, you're looking for Jesus to show up and say something. You're looking for, for, for God to do something miraculous. And He does. But it's sort of understated. And folks, the Christian life is like that now. It's sort of understated. Sometimes we want the, the big thing, we want the excitement, we want the, the, the glorious experience of Christianity. Surely that's what God would want us to have. And so much more often it looks like a storm on the high seas. It looks like 
serving food to a bunch of seasick sailors. That's what life looks like. And that's encouraging to me. And that should be encouraging to you. So often we're kind of like addicts. We really want that great experience of Christianity. We want to see and be a part of something noteworthy and exceptional and huge. The majority of the Christian life is not like that. It's day in and day out. Sometimes there are storms. And sometimes you're shipwrecks. And I think that's part of what Luke is communicating to us here. The way this story ends is kind of like our Christian life is. Sometimes God does very wonderful. Sometimes He encourages us with His Word in ways that hold us steadfast in the face of pain, in the face of impossible difficulty, in the face of hardship, in the face of of personal hurts. God shows up and a promise from His Word just holds you steady. Sometimes God brings a healing. Sometimes, Sometimes He blesses you in that way. But more often, he uses the Christian to minister in normal, everyday, boring, dull, run-of-the-mill ways that accomplish his purposes. And so this is the encouragement to me, lest I be an addict looking for that next great spiritual experience or that I think I should always have smooth sailing. That's not the norm of the Christian life. Christian life is day in and day out. It's not always glorious. A third takeaway. Christian, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. And this is explicitly about Christ. Paul makes no bones about it in 27, 23. He says that he is God's property. The God to whom I belong has spoken. He understands very clearly. He has been bought with a price. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so the question this morning is, can you say with Paul that you belong to Christ in this way? That was the source of this great confidence that Paul had for the future. He belonged to God, and God had told him how it would work out. That was the source of his confidence. Do you belong to God that way? Have you been bought with a price? If you can't say that, then you're like the sailors in the storm, having no hope of salvation. But I stand with Paul. And I testify before you that I have faith in God that it will be exactly as we have been told in Scripture. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the call to you is to repent of your futile attempts to escape the judgment of God like those sailors who got on that little dinghy to get away. You have just as much hope of succeeding in that escape as they did. So repent of that futile way of life and instead put your faith in Christ who is the one who redeems us, who is the one who has redeemed us with His very own blood. He is the only way by which we may have peace with God, that we may escape the judgment to come, that we may know Him and be in His presence. And so that's the call to us to repent, to believe to trust in God even when He's under the surface or, or when he's, he's behind the set and we can't see Him. Will we trust Him then? Will we trust His Word? Even when it doesn't come with, with glorious acclamations of, of wonderful things that make us believe that surely it's got to be the Word of God because look at the miracles that come with it or 
will we believe his word when it's stormy weather and and we think all may be lost that's the challenge and that's the encouragement to us and that's the encouragement i draw from this the christian life is is less like pentecost and it's more like this this shipwreck it's more like this doomed journey god is no less involved in this shipwreck he is no less involved in this doomed journey than he was in pentecost but my life looks a lot more like this and so i take comfort in christ and my encouragement to you is take comfort in christ even in the midst of the storms even in the midst of this everyday life that we lead and he will deliver us i firmly believe that it will be exactly as my god has said it will work out i'm going to pray right now and After I'm done praying, there will be a family that will come forward and they'd love to pray with you about the storms of life or or whatever you want to talk about. They'd love to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, I read this story that's um, so much about uh, ships and storms and the sea and danger and people's fear and bad reactions to fear and, and the faith of Paul. And I'm encouraged that you were at work behind the scenes and under the surface all through even these chapters where we didn't read your name often. We didn't see you show your face all that much. But you were working. And you are working now. Father, I pray that you would help us have our eyes fixed on, on you, the eyes of faith, because our eyes that are in our heads may not be able to perceive you, may not be able to perceive you at work accomplishing your purposes, but you are at work. Father, we believe that. Your word says it. And so we trust you and we entrust ourselves to you. Father, I pray this morning that, that anyone who is, who is thinking to escape judgment by hopping into a dinghy and, and rowing away on their own, that they would, they would put that thought behind them, that they would cut that boat loose they would trust in Christ. They would trust in the promised deliverance that is only to be found in Him. Father, I pray that You would save those people even this morning. Father, we trust You and we thank You for the many, many ways that You care for us, even in the midst of the storms of our lives. Help us to keep our eyes of faith fixed on You and to believe Your Word throughout. I pray this in Jesus' name. Now, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all and you are dismissed.